Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Live from Las Vegas, it's time for you to be Talking Movies with America's most award-winning film critic, John Barber. You're being, John, you're being so gentle. I've heard you give reviews and you're so rough, you're saying. <laughs> How would you have evaluated your own work uh, in some of the films that you did prior to, uh, <laughs> prior to The Longest Shot? I mean, Much like... better than you, my friend. <laughs> Our next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. Hi, this is John Barber. And this is Talking Movies. And this is going to be the show that I'm absolutely going to treasure the most. Because the man that I'm going to talk to, his name is Stu Shostak, is a human being that I absolutely and totally treasure. And you're going to find out why in just a couple of minutes. In the meantime, Doug, how are you and how long... Have you and your brother been in Texas since you lost your homes and your offices in the forest fires in California? Hi, everyone. Hi, John. We've been here about 11 months now. You've set up your business perfectly, but have you guys found a home that you love that you've moved into already? That was a difficult task. We uh, did the auction thing. We kept on getting bid out. Uh, We looked forever. Uh, but we finally did settle on a couple and the one we didn't want to live in, we're actually going to be living in. Uh, uh, well, that's, <laughs> listen, we got bit out of the other one. Listen, eventually you found the one you wanted and I hope it's half as good as the one that I just visited this last Saturday. When, my did, when I did my fifth show and probably my best show with Stu Shostak, He's living high up in Fraser Park, about 90 miles north of uh, Los Angeles in these Alpine Mountains. I mean, it's beautiful. And you know that being old-fashioned show business, so I, was, I always would wear a suit and a tie. And, and these dudes, other four shows, I always wore a suit and a tie. But up there, I figured that I should wear something a little more comfortable. And so what I did is I put on this yellow top that was gifted to me by a lady lawyer. And I thought, well, when I go walking around in the trees, it's this color and they'll be able to find me. But then I thought about the fact that the other guest on my show, whom I've never met and I'm anxious to meet, is the person who made this phenomenal, successful documentary, sadly just called Stu Show, and it's a monster hit. It's just been released just now. It's a monster hit just out there. His name is C.J. Wallace, and he's from Vancouver, and I'm from Toronto, 
So I thought at first I was going to wear this as a compliment to him. But my wife said, no, you look so better in yellow with Stu. So please wear the yellow. And I'm going to wear the yellow. Now, a little bit about Stu. For 70 years in this business, I've earned a living. I've gained employment and lost employment by talking. But I may be at a little loss for words as I go on to say this. Stu not only saved my life, but as you will see from this fabulous documentary that C.J. Wallace made, he saved the life of his lover. Now, in my case, aside from my wife and my son, who I had late in life, my work indeed was my life. And for 10 years, when I first moved up here in Las Vegas, my webmaster was my closest friend also because I didn't socialize much being locked up like this in a computer room. And he built uh, my website. And then about six years ago, he inherited a half a million dollars from a homosexual friend whom he intended until the guy died. Then he moved to Thailand and then he moved down the Donald Trump rabbit hole. And when I declined to keep him company going down there, he decided, well, fuck John Barber. I'm going to take his work with me. So he destroyed literally 40 years of my work and my life. Before my heart could break, I got a call the next day and my heart was mended by Stu Shostak. Stu said, hey, do you still have those films and those videos? I said, yes. He said, well, you gather them up because we're going to rebuild your website. And that's indeed what he did. And when I was going through all these old films, I found even better material that he made sure was going to be seen by the rest of the people. I cannot thank that man enough. Not only is he a professional treasure and a legend in his own right because he's the only human who archives fabulously television from the 50s to the 60s. And it's no wonder that Lucille Ball absolutely loved the man. And she spent the last dozen of her years working closely with Stu to save her work the way he saved my work. And what I'd like you to do right now I haven't been a film critic for 49 years because, as I said to uh, Neil Simon and uh, Burt Reynolds, and when they called me and said, hey, John, you can't stop being a critic because who's going to tell the uh, the emperors of the movies that they're wearing no clothing? And I said, well, just I just ran out of entertaining ways to say it's a piece of shit. But the truth is, when I love something, I get to share it. And I came out of retirement because Stu would have said, you know, if you didn't like it, you could say what you want. But fortunately for me and fortunately for you and the audience, I loved it. So could you do me a favor, Doug, and play that brief review that I ad-libbed for Stu on Saturday? And now, ladies and gentlemen, we have an actual, authentic, honest-to-goodness, professional movie critic with us to share his thoughts. He's seen it on the Stu Show documentary. He's won more awards as a film critic than anybody else out there. Please welcome back to this program, as I get to take camera two now, to review the film, Stu Show documentary, Mr. John Barber. 
This is the fifth time that I've driven from Las Vegas all the way here to California to be on Stu's show because as that old song says, I'd walk a million miles for one of his smiles. But now after 43 years, he has asked me to once again be a film critic. I quit after 10 years at Los Angeles Magazine and KNBC in Los Angeles in 1979 when I got my first Real People special on NBC. And when I announced my retirement, I got two immediate phone calls within minutes from two of the biggest stars in this business. Surprising calls, and they're surprising because I had absolutely trashed both of them, as you will see later in some of the reviews that we talk about. And both of them not only became big fans and big friends, they also wanted to be on my show. And those two were Neil Simon, the most successful playwright in history, and Burt Reynolds. And each one of them said the exact same thing. John, you cannot quit. Please don't quit. Because who is going to tell the movie emperors that they're wearing no clothes? And I said, Neil and Bert, I must tell you very, very honestly, I've just run out of interesting and entertaining ways to say it's a piece of shit. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, I love it when I see something I love. Because if I see something I love, I can share it. And that's getting rarer and rarer until I saw Stu's documentary the other day and I must tell you I absolutely love it it is a, it is probably the third best documentary ever made about anyone in show business number one would have to be searching for sugar man unbelievable you must watch it the greatest ever made the second best was the one that I did on Showtime back in 1985, and it's called Ernie Kovacs' Television's Original Genius. But the third best is sadly called Stu Shostak. I love the film, but I'm not fond of the title because what is a Stu Shostak to those people who don't even know him? How are they going to be interested in something they don't even know about? What the film needs is a subtitle. I mean, my, uh, my autobiography is called Your Mother's Not a Virgin. Well, what does that mean? So I stack on a subtitle, The Bumpy Life and Times of the Canadian Dropout Who Changed the Face of American Television, so then you get an idea of it. This needs a subtitle. Also, the promo, which is the first, it needs a second half, also sort of a subtitle. The first half showing Lucille Ball's love for Stu Shostak. And Stu's love for Lucy is absolutely fabulous because it introduces the word love. But then they, we are led to another true romantic love story about Stu Shostak and his girlfriend, Janine. Now, he is forced to marry Janine not because she's expecting, but because she's expecting to die. She has a brain aneurysm, and she's in the hospital. And Stu cannot get through to the doctors. The stuff that he needs done for the woman that he loves 
has to call a daughter. The daughter's not always available. He says, well, you know what? I'm going to marry her. And the scene in that hospital with her all wired up and stuffing her nose and her ears and her mouth is heartbreaking and heartlifting. It'll bring. tears to your eyes and you to your feet but amazingly when they get married and she's in the wheelchair you think where can this love story go but what happens is it in his battles with the medical industry it turns into one of the greatest public service films about the four profit, corruptive, dreadful health system in this country. So on three levels, this deserves three to five stars on every level. And I would urge each and every one of you to watch this film. It is a wonderful, feel-good film. Wow, you got me in tears. You realize that? I would love to know, welcome to the show, my dearest, dearest friend, Stu Shostak. Stu, how are you and where are you? I'm in Pine Mountain Club. We have to distinguish that from Fraser Park. You know the difference between Pacoima and Beverly Hills? <laughs> Pine Mountain Club is Beverly Hills compared to Fraser Park, okay? That's only going to fly people on this mountain. The people that are watching this right now that live up here on the mountain know exactly what I'm talking about. But for my peace of mind, let's call it Pine Mountain Club because that's where I am. I'm fine, John. I see you're still wearing the same wardrobe. I think that and the Canadian t-shirt are all that you own, I'm starting to think. <laughs> well, uh, actually, <laughs> actually, I have 46 suits that I still own from having doing having done real people and AM Los Angeles and they still fit me. You know, you know, the only thing that's loose now after all these years, skin, but, <laughs> but I was going to say, you've also still got 46 pending lawsuits from all your movie reviews. But I got to tell you now, because of this wonderful film called Stu show and not Stu show stack, the whole world will not only know about what it is you do professionally, but what a heart you have personally. I have, even though I know a lot about you, I still have a bunch of questions I want to ask you. And I'm going to put you on hold a second because the world is going to know about you because a brilliant film has just been released, which is just going gangbusters now, made by somebody I never heard of. Doesn't have a name. He just has initials, and his name is C.J. Wallace. So, C.J., are you there? I am, sir. Thank you for having us. Okay. Well, C.J., I have a couple of a bunch of questions to ask you. First, where are you? How are you? Are you married? Do you have children? When did you become interested in making films? And uh, how long before your name became initials? Or were you baptized, CJ? <laughs> so there you go. Where are you? 
Uh, I'm by Hollywood Boulevard, which is equally as beautiful as Pine Mountain Club. <laughs> Impossible. Yeah. The trees are equally as magnificent. And uh, there's as many characters. Um, uh, not married, uh, no kids, uh, film forever and initials forever. When you were a youngster, uh, you were, you were born where? Uh, Vancouver. Do you have siblings? I do not. When you were a youngster, uh, which hockey team did you want to grow up and play for? St. Louis Blues. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) you couldn't skate or you couldn't shoot. And so what led you? to your interest in films, or was there another interest besides hockey? Yeah, no, I, I played hockey to one level below NHL, uh, but I'm five foot six, so that's, that wasn't going to work. Um, oh, and, uh, my gosh, I'm only an inch taller than you. Yeah. <laughs> and you know that myself and uh, the fellow, uh, the Swede that started in Walking Tall, and he and I and... We started the celebrity hockey team, which is still going strong in Hollywood if you look around Mm -hmm. for it. Okay, and then there were a couple of very short hockey players who did extremely, extremely well. You got close being in the second level. So when you were still in the second level, you must have had some kind of interest in films or television or movies. Yeah, definitely. I was... uh... You know, I was watching shows like X-Files and Wonder Years and Lucy and all these things in the time when I wasn't doing hockey or homework. And uh, it just slowly, you know, there's something, maybe it's because I knew that everyone was looking for six foot three goaltenders (laughs) that I was just started to, you know, see an exit, you know, plan the exit strategy. I never like to have a plan B, but I also don't like to, you know, uh, commit career suicide or anything like that. So, um yeah, just at a certain point, I realized that uh, it it would take so much work to become sort of a career goalie that just played in the juniors all the time. And um, I guess there's some ego that wanted to do something bigger or make more of an impact. And uh, I can't really sing. So the other thing that, that that's similar to that is making films. So here we are. Well, the actor, by the way, was a guy named Bo Svensson, who was, you know, starred in a couple of Robert Redford films, too. So there had to come a time when you started to do your first your first films or videos. What did you work on originally? And when? how long was it before you could do something well enough that you could earn a living at it? Uh, I mean, I guess during school, I had my parents had a home video camera. So anytime there was a homework assignment that was like a big project, I would just, you know, go around the corner and make some type of funny video. And then that always got me an A, even though it really didn't have much to do with whatever I was supposed to be making it on. It was just something that the teacher could laugh at. Um, And then that sort of led to uh, our uh, video teacher. He did the school um, television show every week. So I showed enough initiative that he realized he could get paid for something that I would do for him for free. Uh, which led to working at a cable station, filming live hockey shows and weird call-in psychic line shows that are I'm going to make a script about somehow one day. It was So just all these things, just finding any way to volunteer, is similar to Stu's story. Any, any set I could get on, uh, work for free, and just uh, you know get a free film school. What do the, the initials uh, CJ stand for? 
Charles Christian. I don't know. You got to ask my mom. She decided this. How do you get the word Christian out of J? You, we're going to have to have Maggie Wallace on here to, to talk about that. I don't know. Okay, she said now, that she said oh. when I went to elementary school that she thought it would be a cool name instead of Charles for whatever reason. But then I got there and there was DJ and TJ and all these other J's. So, uh, and then people still sang the Charles in Charge theme song at me as some <laughs> sort of insult. So it, nothing worked. It didn't matter. Over your right shoulder is a uh, picture. It's called The Perfect Bid. And Stu has told me it is absolutely one of the really magnificent documentaries that's out there and that I should watch it. And over your left shoulder, I see a picture under some flowers. So let's go to the picture under the flowers. Who's that? I'm so, I put that there in every interview. I'm so glad. It's it's my one of my favorite actors, if not my favorite actor, Sterling Hayden. There's God. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Oh, I could watch. Oh, the killing. Oh, the killing. Uh, that's just where I get started. Johnny Guitar, uh, the movie where he throws the harpoon through people. It's, but it's, he I was could, never better than in Stanley Kubrick's film. I'm, I sort of joke that I'm chasing Kubrick's ghost because ultimately that's who I idolize and, and, that idea of leaving together that sort of beautiful body of work. That's, that's the whole intention of, of he you know, the, was the by far the most original American director because absolutely every film that he makes looks different. Absolutely. Uh, and that's what's so great. I just love that. I love artists that, and it's frustrating for, you know, when you're trying to market something because everything's always to a different demographic, but that's, those are the artists I love that do the exact opposite of whatever they did last time. And uh, a guy that memorizes prices, right. Uh, prizes uh, to someone like Stu is, you know, you know. So, now, okay, I just have one last thing to say about Sterling Hayden because please, I, I, a half a dozen times I will look at that clip from that film where he talks about the essence. And, mm-hmm. Oh my God, it is so brilliant. And Kubrick had a great hand in writing it. As a matter of fact, Sterling. Almost steals a movie from Peter Sellers. Absolutely. With that that single speech. So I'm glad I spotted that. Me too. Serendipity. (laughs) Now, this one over your right shoulder, perfect bid. Tell us very quickly about why that and why you think it's so popular, because I understand it's an enormous hit. Definitely. Uh, It's just, you know... It was my fir- when I didn't have a lot of money, I just started producing films myself because I can do the editing and the animation and all that stuff. So there's no point paying 25 people and having to chase them. Um, so I read about this story, Ted Slauson, who memorized every prize on The Price is Right for 35 years. And he would just go in the audience and yell out the correct prizes to people. And then Bob, <laughs> yeah. And then Bob started recognizing him. And Bob's one of the greatest showmen of all time. So he started incorporating Ted and he became this sort of cult figure within the family of The Price is Right. Um, and, it, you know, I said we, we didn't have a ton of money at the time. So I just put our life savings into into flying Ted up. And, and we interviewed him for three hours. And uh, we got Roger Dobkowitz, the 40-year the producer of The Price is Right. He saw I showed him a rough cut because obviously my intention was to impress him. Sure. I wanted him to like it very much. And he offered to be in it. And then he got Bob Barker involved. And then once you get those two people, it's... Uh, well, you uh, you seem to have 
an affinity for these offbeat personalities who yell out from the audience yes. at uh, the stage. And that sounds like Stu Shostak talking to Lucille Ball. So yeah. bring a hey, bring bring my idol and my friend back on here, Dougie. I want to talk. Let's see if we can get them both on the screen because I have to ask Stu a couple of questions. Stu. Yes, I'm. I'm glad you're con- you're 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 comparing me to somebody who yells out of studio audiences. Thank you so much, John. The well, next time you're in front of a in front of a camera in front of an audience, just be ready for me, okay? Well, listen, that's how Lucy got to recognize you. So, well, I have to ask you: Do you have any siblings? Yes, I have a brother and a sister. Okay, what do your brother and your sister do? They are as far away from show business as you can get. Uh, the last I heard, my brother was retiring from a job that he had in Minnesota for 20 or 30 years, working with an importer, clearing things through customs. Oh, uh, my sister uh, actually works with autistic children the way my daughter is now doing that. So they are totally removed from show business, had no interest in it at all. I was the only oddball in my family that for some reason wanted to be in this crazy, crazy business of ours. Well, God bless your sister and your daughter for doing what it is they do because my closest friend in Las, second closest friend in Las, uh, Las Vegas now, John Haddad, his wife is Indian, Navajo Indian. And she got a PhD and she spends 12 hours a day, six days a week teaching autistic children. So lesson. Now, did you, unlike CJ, have any interest in anything other than television? Because it seems you became an instant addict. No, I had no other interest. None, none at all. Anything that my parents forced me into dr <laughs> phil i had no interest in at all sports forget it i i went to hebrew school to get bar mitzvah so my parents could throw a big party so <laughs> all of this stuff was thrown at me i had to take karate lessons because they thought that would discipline me better obviously that didn't work okay oh no I was a child of television from the moment I came out of the womb, and there was nothing that was going to change me. My grandfather tried to bribe me into becoming an attorney like my father is. Didn't work. I got money thrown at me by him, cars. I got apartments thrown. No, no. I wanted to be in show business, show business, and because my family was so far removed from it, they didn't think that I would ever be able to make a living. And like you, John, at times, they were right, but I was determined. <laughs> But and you, now here I am in Pine Mountain Club, the result of 40 years of working, 50 years now of working in television. But you take, take that for what it's worth. Listen, like me, I often did audience warm ups for sitcoms. OK, and you were excellent at doing that. So how come you never became the performer that you might might have wanted to be? Well, John, I mean, we know the answer to that. It's timing. It's timing and who you know. It helps to have a modicum of talent. But if you're not in the right place at the right time, you ain't going anywhere. What was your first big break? But you were a contestant on the Groucho show, right? (laughs) Yeah. But uh, the thing that kept me going was my love for Jack Parr, the greatest late night talk show host ever. 
And then he he opened his show with the most fabulous monologue. I can still remember some of his material at one time. He said, you know, I never vote because it only encourages them. I mean, <laughs> it's so good. And I thought, oh, my God, I didn't even know I could write a joke until I was uh, 30. But you were always successful and you were always funny and you were always I wouldn't call it pushy, but you were enthusiastic. Aggressive. Uh, no, you, well, you know what? Aggressiveness inclines pushiness. You were kind of adorable when you were pushy. Well, and, ask and, some of the people in the medical industry whether I was adorable. Well, that's what's so wonderful about your film. So now, can I get both of them on the screen Doug, because I have to ask CJ a question now. Or are we going to go back and forth? You can do it any way that you want. CJ, can you hear me? Yes, sir. What was it about Stu that you heard about that compelled you to make this magnificent and, I must say, needed documentary? Oh, thank you. Um when we did the perfect bid, we, uh, Mallory and I, my co-producer, uh, we set up a, a bunch of screenings in LA. There's a few theaters around Hollywood here that'll show independent films. Uh, and uh, Stu came out to one of those and he saw the movie and Roger was there and Ted and everybody. And he invited us on to his show, uh, which as you know, you show up there, what, eight hours early and you go to the deli and you, you know, <laughs> you take his laundry to the thing and you, you know. So anyway, so we're at the <laughs> – I saw that face. This is new to me, CJ. Thank <laughs> yeah, you yeah. so much. <laughs> so we go to the deli, and, and Stu, you know, we're catching up. So Stu starts to tell me the story, you know, a little bit about Lucy and a little bit of what he went through. And, you know, he told me a bit about Janine – I almost blew the ending of the movie. But, you know, uh, the, some of the events in the movie, the, you know, the 10% of the story. And, again, it's just, you know, not being opportunistic, but it's just my whole – the whole reason I do this is for these reasons. It's like you, you meet these people and, and their stories deserve to be amplified. Uh, and I have the ability to do that. So as soon as he started, whether it was intentional, he was telling me this little pitch or whether we, uh, we were just the, the right, like you said, right time, right moment. Uh, it just was obvious. Um, yes. How, when did you first and how did you first meet Janine? And when did you start dating? Um, I was one of the co-producers of these Lucy conventions that we had in the LA area in the 1990s. Uh, after working for her for 10 years uh, with a gentleman named Tom Watson, who was also the president of her fan club, who ended up becoming her publicist as a result of um, her admiration for him. Uh, we worked together on her last series, Life with Lucy, and, and we originally were going to do a Lucy convention while we were in production, but she sort of nixed that idea. She felt it was too self-serving, and, and then we said, well, you don't have to come to it, and then she said, well, you're throwing this big party celebrating my career, and you know, she said, I'm kind of damned if I do and damned if I don't. If I don't come, I come off like a snob because I'm not going to my own party, and if I do come, it's like a, a self-serving ego trip so we put that on hold until the 90s um and uh, gary morton was still alive when we did our first one and he didn't want to come for the same reason uh, first of all he thought it would be too painful because lucy had passed about six or seven years prior 
to make a long story longer, one of the first people to send their money in for these conventions was this ultimate super Lucy fan who lived in Northern California named Janine Kaysen. Now, I was married to somebody else at the time, and I had just had my first child, so I didn't know that she existed at any of these conventions, and we did six of them. Uh, and, but she knew me because each year I would either do a panel discussion or host a game show or something. So I was always in front of the audience in some way, shape, or form. All right, the last convention we did was in 2001. Shortly after that, I got divorced. Uh, did, um, so did, uh, did knowing Janine have anything to do with the divorce? No. I didn't know she existed. Oh, That's okay. some, some of the reviews that have come out on the film are getting that wrong. We did not meet at the convention. I didn't know she was even there. Okay. What happened was I had turned 43 or 44 and my hair started to gray. It's nowhere near where it is now, but it started to gray. And I suddenly became unemployable as a warm-up guy in Hollywood. That's <laughs> what happens. Now I could have, I, I could have done the Jack Berry thing and dyed my hair, but I didn't want to do that. Um, I just figured, look, I'm, I'm, I'm getting older. Just face facts. I was a single parent. I wasn't looking for any kind of relationship. It was kind of a painful and emotional divorce. And I had my video business at the time, which was editing demo reels for actors and transferring things to VHS and beta for clients. So I wasn't looking for it, but I did miss the audiences. I really wanted to do audience warmups again. But the problem is Hollywood is has an ageism problem, which yeah. even though they don't want to admit it's there, when you get old and your hair gets gray, you're unemployable. And all of the producers that I had done warm-up work for were in their 50s when I was in my 40s, so they weren't working. And but you I, were still you were still dateable. So when did you meet Janine and how was how was the date? I started an audio internet talk show in 2006 because I missed audiences and I still wanted to keep the spirit of classic TV alive. One of the things that drove me nuts was these networks would come on like Nick at Night and TV Land and they would embrace the subject long enough until the numbers, the ratings started to drop and then they'd start editing the shows and they'd start bringing in new shows so that their idea of classic TV was facts of life and home improvement, which <laughs> drove me bananas. I mean, all of a sudden Dick Van Dyke and All in the Family and I of Lucy and the Honeymooners and Twilight Zone were shoved off to the side in favor of these 80s sitcoms and, like, and, like Growing Pains. And, and real it, people. And real people. John, thank <laughs> you for, you know, it's your show. I can't really say anything. But in any case, I started this internet talk show to keep the spirit of classic TV alive. And um, I was able to get my the friends that I had made doing audience warm-ups during those days to come and be on the show. Pat Harrington and Bonnie Franklin and Dwayne Hickman and Janet Waldo and all of these people that I had become friends with during my warm-up days came to help me boost the show and to get an audience. And my friend Mark Evanier, who has one of the most popular blogs on the internet, kept plugging the show so that I was able to build at that time a small but but loyal audience. I had a lot of Lucy people on the show. I had Keith Thibodeau. I had Shirley Mitchell. I had Doris Singleton. All of these actors that to the mainstream public, you may not know by name, but Lucy fans know who they are. And so uh, there was a, a newsletter put out by the Jamestown Lucy Festival in New York, of which Janine was a member of, and they plugged my show. 
All right. So Janine started listening to my show and she started calling in, asking questions of my guests. And I'm listening to her ask these questions. And it's like, my God, this woman asks questions like I would ask. She's not a carbuncle. She's not a she's not a crazed, deranged fan who lives in her parents' basement. This woman knows stuff. So how did you arrange to meet for the first time? And what was the first date like? And how long did you date before she got sick? I I was reluctant because of my painful divorce, but we I called her. I got her phone number. I emailed her. We talked on the phone for four hours, and on her dime, she came down to Southern California from Northern California, and we hit it off immediately. I mean, where was this woman my whole life? We had everything in common. What did she do for a living? She was a music teacher, professional music teacher. She had 40 or 50 students. She had a music studio inside of her house, the same way I had a video production room in my house. What music did she teach? Say again? What music did she teach? She taught piano. She she taught guitar. She taught wow. kids how to read music. Oh, she was wonderful. Uh, yeah, and she made a great living. She had a ma- magnificent home in Petaluma. So she she you know it's like where has this woman been my whole life? So we we dated for uh, seven years. Uh, we weren't going to get married because she had been married twice. Two failed marriages on her side. One failed marriage on. My side, we we already had kids. She had grandkids by that point, um, and there was no reason for us to get married. And so we were we were instant boyfriend girlfriend for seven years, and then she had the brain aneurysm. Well, the interesting thing is, I just inter- interviewed uh, Donna Mills, uh, whom I urged to be on your show with Classic Television, and she's had her mate for 22 years and they never married he has a separate house and she has a separate well, house. we still have separate homes even though i must married. tell you you have a gorgeous place but hers is a museum i know i, I mean, know you i, could, you I always start... when people come up here i always have them come here first uh and they're blown away by what i have and cj and mal haven't been up here since we built the compound uh, onto the house for this television studio in my workroom they're coming up next week to do the the show but i always bring them here first because if we take them to her house first like you they're blown away at her hollywood memorabilia and stuff and then they come over here and see my place and they go well gee still your place is nice too. her place is like a miniature san simeon that it is red room you she could charge admission now we have had so many requests from television you know we've been doing cj and i have been doing nothing but interviews since the film came out and the question that i always get is when can we come up and see that red room and of course you know janine she's going crazy i don't want camera crews coming into that room treading dirt and mud and stuff and so i'm dealing with that now too so i wouldn't want anybody in that house it is just it's spectacular now what happened that eventually led to you proposing to her well she had the brain aneurysm and how did it happen tell me about the circumstances because i believe you were on the phone right we were she'd been complaining of headaches for over a week and she was being stubborn and i said let me take you to urgent care let's get your head x-rayed and see what's going no 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 because for years the doctors kept telling her it was hormonal and they were they said it was migraines and they were giving her these pills that once they took effect knocked the pain out 
What we didn't know was they weren't migraines. And if they had done an MRI, they would have seen this pressure build up uh, on, on her main blood vessel that that sends blood from her heart to her head. And if they had just done that, if she it's it's partly her fault, though, for not for being so stubborn. And what happened was we were on the phone. Her headaches had gotten really bad and the pills weren't working yet. She insisted on coming up here and spending the weekend in her house. So I did drive her up reluctantly. And then I went back home and I talked to her every day. And she was saying, these headaches are getting worse and worse and worse. And I begged her to let me come up there and take her home. And she said, no, no, no. And uh, to make a long story short, because it's in the documentary, we were on the phone one day and, and she said, something's really wrong now. It's not just a headache i'm feeling really weird and i said well then call the paramedics we we have a we pay more in property tax uh, to kern county than anybody else because we have a 24 7 emt in the fire uh station here which was the best thing we could do because we're in a kind of a remote area here and i said call the firemen and tell them to come over get the paramedics to check you over and if they find something wrong they'll they'll ambulance you out and then you know we can deal with this and she said, no, I just call my neighbor and have her look in on me. I said, your neighbor's not a doctor. She's not an EMT. And we're arguing back and forth. And, and suddenly she stopped talking and I'm going, hello, hello. And I know that we're still connected because I can hear the TV on in the background. So we hung up. And I called the paramedics up here directly, which yeah. I was told later I shouldn't have done. I should have just dialed 911 in L.A., but if I had done that, it would have taken them longer to get to the paramedics. I had the local number, so I called them, and it's this very small town up here. Everybody knows each other, and it's a wonderful place to live. And I didn't know the particular EMT that answered the phone, but I said, can you go over to Janine's house? Just make sure she's okay. She suddenly stopped talking to me. And they said, sure. They went right over. I mean, literally, five minutes after this happened, they were there. But... This is where the bureaucracy and the BS of the medical industry and the insurance company and all that started. I didn't know it at the time because we were not blood relatives, because we were not husband and wife. Once they got over there and saw how serious this was and they didn't uh, ambulance her out, they had to airlift her out because it was a life and death situation. All of a sudden, I was persona non grata. They wouldn't tell me a thing because I was not related to her. And that's that little did I know at that point that that's where all of this started and made me so damn angry about the way the healthcare system is run in this country. Yes, there are wonderful people. There are great doctors, great nurses, great people. But you got to cut through the bullshit and the crap to get to them sometime. And I knew none of this. I didn't and know. Hold it, hold it. Idiots. So now the only way that you can do that is to marry her. Right. That's what okay. I ended up doing. Okay, so tell me, when you made that decision, how you made the decision, did you talk to the daughter first, or did you just go to the hospital, and how no. did no, no, it, it it was a long process. And again, it's all in CJ's wonderful film. She was in a coma for six weeks. And every single time they would tell me because her family was either in in um, Wisconsin or up in Northern California where she was living, um, you know, I'd have to get a hold of them. They want to do this. They want to they tell me what they'd have to do. But I couldn't give the OK because we weren't related. And her family was, you know, getting really upset. I mean, they knew that I was dealing with this you know full time and they're saying why do you keep calling us why just just tell them to do it i said and little this is the other thing i was her advanced directive 
I didn't know this, but the paperwork was there and it didn't matter because these surgeries that she needed were so, so critical that the advanced directive thing, it was, a, it helped okay, a little now, bit, but they still second. had to talk to her family. Yeah, but she's in a coma. Doesn't she have to say, yes, I'll marry you? No. Well, she came out of the coma. The minute okay. she came out of the well, coma. Just tell me how that happened, because in the movie, it is so moving. Oh, my God, it is. So just tell me about it. She she came out of the coma, and the minute I could see that she was somewhat awake, I said, we have to get married. Because you've still got surgeries ahead of you. I've still got bullshit. I've got to deal with day in and day out with the insurance that was company. Part, that, hey, hold it. The bullshit line was part of your proposal? <laughs> well, I might, I, I might have said that. Look, John, this was an incredibly stressful. I'm sure. This was the most was. stressful thing that I've ever had to do in my entire life. And I was ill prepared for this. I knew nothing about social workers and case managers and, and how the, the bullshit work uh, where you okay, get these so shitty now, doctors assigned to you that are part of a team that <laughs> can't be removed. I mean, it's what? What were you going to say? Lucy would say, I love you, but listen for a minute. Okay. How was the service performed after she said, yes, I will marry you? Well, we had to wait until she left the hospital. When she left the hospital, she still had a half a dozen surgeries that she needed. Her eye was still messed up. Her throat was still messed oh up. So God. all I wanted her to do was to get well enough to walk down the aisle to marry me. And then we continued along with all of the procedures. She was in the hospital for nine months, but the surgeries continued for another five or six months after that. She had in-home therapy and all kinds of stuff. Well, you know, and, you what? know CJ only had a certain amount of time to get the point across in the film, which he did beautifully. But there is so much more to the the story uh, that's not necessary. The general public gets the idea. I didn't make this film to show off my relationship with Lucille Ball. I didn't, didn't make, make it film. at all. So let me make this point, John. It's very important. <laughs> I didn't make this film to plug my show. I made this film, and CJ knew this going in. You could ask him because he had to twist my arm. I didn't well, think I'm anybody would care. I made this film to show people that if they get aggressive and angry, and become a bastard at times, you can emerge victoriously dealing with the healthcare system in this country. That's why I made the film. And that's what he shows in this film. That's what I want people going away from when they see this film. And he did it beautifully. But there's a lot more to the story that he didn't have time for. That's my point. Now you may speak on your own show. Go ahead. Well, <laughs> me, one of the sweetest lines in the whole documentary is from an actor whose name I cannot remember who said, you know, when people get married, it's for better or worse or till death do us part. But Stu did that before they were married. It's such a beautiful line. And, it, and then obviously, and I say it in my review, I mean, not only is this a magnificent love story, Stu, it's become a monumental public service. Listen, I have a friend who just got prostate cancer. You know what his medicine costs every month? Yeah. $3,000 a month for some little pills. Yeah. I mean, it's just criminal what's going on. So this film has become a monster public service. So now I want to talk to CJ a minute. CJ, I said that I felt 
Stu's show should have a subtitle because, you know, it is a love story. It's a story of a love for a man, for a woman, and he marries her to save her life. And in saving her life, it becomes more than a love story. It becomes this magnificent public service documentary. So that's why I did not like the title, Just Stu's Show. There should have been something else. Because in the promo, what you're showing or what the promoter or whoever's doing, they're showing nothing but celebrities. And I thought that's the worst part of the promo. That should have all been replaced by shots of Stu marrying her, of Stu fighting the medical profession, and then letting us know at the end, this is a public service film about how to defeat the corrupt for-profit medical system in this country. So do you have any words to defend the critique of the promo, which you did not make? I absolutely did make it. And uh, Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, I'm ready to go. No, no, this is fascinating. This is what no one ever talks about the process of creating these marketing things. And it's it's such an important part of of doing all this. And you're you're right. What you'll see. This, the old movie is called Perfect Bid, The Contestant Who Knew Too Much. So you yeah. like that one? I love it. <laughs> I love it because it says something about what it's about. Of course. But, but okay. one called Stu's show doesn't say anything about what it's about. Right. But sort of the way that I think that, I mean, we cut one trailer early on in the very beginning that was equal weight. The first, uh, you know, 45 seconds was Lucy. It was very similar to what we had in the one you saw. And the second half really did go into what you were talking about and had Stu ranting and raving about going and getting a gun. And it was very confusing for people in a minute and a half to get the story to have the effect that you're saying that it's have, that it has on people. You really, unfortunately, need to have the 95 minutes of of really, you know, getting used to Stu, seeing his relationship with Lucy how it affected him when she passed and then seeing the situation arise again where he's never going to let this happen again, this this heartache he sort of went through with Lucy. Well, there's, sort, then, of a, there's sort of ways, CJ, you could have done it, aren't you? Listen, I, but the, the, the res, overall result, the finished product, is magnificent. But if you're going to do it, you know, you could have taken the camera onto the street. You could have found couples that loved one another and ask, hey, if he was going to die, would you marry him to save his life? And then you could get the answers. Or you, as the director, could have gone on camera and looked at us and said, listen, if you loved a, a woman or a man, and the only way you could save their life was to marry them, would you do it? And then you'd say, well, this is a story about a man who did. I mean, then that that problem solved. And then you come back on and you tell us, and the reason he did it is he had to take on the medical profession. And then you could have a couple of horror stories about how goddamn awful the health system is in this country, especially compared to Canada. And anyway, but that's not it. You have a magnificent, magnificent film. Thank you. And I really like those trailers that like you're saying, the sort of Hitchcock trailers where it's sort of uh, it's its own sort of companion piece to the film. I do really like those. The, the, the tricky thing is, is just like the audiences now are so fickle and the distributors themselves. Like I, I 
I, it sounds defensive, but I literally want to do exactly what you're saying, but it will not sell the movie. My, my, unfortunately, I have to find a way to put my art into the commercial digestion and tastes of today for the buyers to make sure that Stu's story even gets out there. So there's some, like you're saying, that that's an interesting angle, but distributors didn't like the first trailer that I had too much of, of the, of the, of the actual story. So when I came up with the idea of cutting the trailer, sort of like how they would do a sitcom trailer where it's like Stu and his wacky cast of characters on the Stu show. Uh, that's, I mean, that, that was the only way I could find that would appease the and people. You know, that, CJ, you know what you would have to do? You would have to be as lucky as Stu. Mm-hmm. Stu found a CJ to make this magnificent movie and he gave you carte blanche. You should have been lucky enough to find a better distributor who would give you St- Citizen Kane start carte blanche to go out and make the promo that you could have made brilliantly. But in spite of the problems, it is unbelievably the third best documentary I have ever seen about anybody in show business. Now I'm Looking forward to watching Perfect Bid over your shoulder because I'm fascinated, first of all, by the excellence of this documentary. And Stu has also told me that that is fabulous. And I would watch it. So now that you're not a hockey player, what do your parents think of what wonderful things you have done? Uh, I mean, I'm an only child, so uh, my my mother, I could have, you know, drawn a stick figure on a napkin and she would have put on a parade. Um, to your point, uh, the hockey thing was uh, my dad and, and my dream for, for very many years. And, and uh, he had a family business fixing RVs that he basically did everything in. And, uh, you know, we weren't poor necessarily or anything by any means, but any extra money they had went into goalie gear and sticks and going to tournaments and this and that. So once you get one step away from making it and then you have to have the conversation with your father as a 16 or 17 year old that you're leaving this, uh, that's extremely difficult and was confusing for everybody. Uh, and then luckily, I mean, it, it, you know, like it's the film business. It takes, you know, almost a decade to get to anywhere where it looks like you're doing something. Um, but they're very supportive. They've never, you know, they, it was just confusing at first because like you're very close to making the NHL, and then I just abandoned it to go do some wacky business. That, well, listen, you, know, you may be close to winning an Academy Award next, you know, for making a future film. I don't know what kind of awards they give for documentaries, but if there are awards for documentaries, you are certainly up for one. It wouldn't surprise me in the least if you would win it. Uh, and. Are you a little bit, I mean, it's only been out a few days and it's a monster hit already. Does that not please you? It definitely does. Because to your point with what you're saying about distributors and stuff like that, it's not necessarily distributors. It's the Netflixes, it's the Amazons, it's the Voodoos. It's these, these people in suits that are, that are trying to appease these people that watch TikTok videos that are six seconds <laughs> at a time, you know? So it's... um. Oh, I lost my train of thought. But well, it, it... I, you know what? Because I'll tell you something. I have done by far the most definitive documentary on the murder of John Kennedy and Jim Carrison's solved and sabotaged case. You know, 
I am the only person on earth he told this story to, even though he had sold his book uh, to, uh, to Oliver Stone to make the film. I was the only one he told the story to. And it is, an, it is brilliant. Netflix wouldn't even look at it. Right. I mean, and I don't know distributors or anything like that. So how on earth did you get to get perfect bid and now uh, stews on these wonderful outlets? I mean, they really earn it. And as, I guess that's sort of what I was starting to get into is that they called this project too niche. And it's like, you got Lucille Ball and you got Alan, uh, Aaron Sorkin oh, making, you know, I, so, oh. and that, and that's part of the idea with the trailer. It's like, we're, we, ha- we have to unfortunately trick these people into like digesting this beautiful story because when we show them, it's the biting, you know, uh, expose on the medical industry, you know, all these streaming companies are probably getting money from these companies as well and don't necessarily want this you know, you remind me a little bit, your enthusiasm for what it is that you're doing, of the young man from Europe who shot uh, Searching for Sugar Man on his iPhone. Mm-hmm. And it yeah. ended up winning an Academy Award. I mean, story is everything. Characters you are have- your greatest super- Characters are your greatest special effect. Like you can have Marvel movies and all these things, but there's nothing better than a close-up of Sterling Hayden. That does... <laughs> <laughs> You are absolutely <laughs> and totally right about that. Okay. Oh my God. I am so proud of you, Stu. And I'm so Don't be proud of me. You be proud of CJ Wallace. Well, He's, this is all his doing. Well, I know, but you uh, you were the subject of the story, and he wouldn't have found you if you weren't excellent at what you do in preserving and archiving classic television. The only one on the planet doing it from the 50s to the seventies and he and the love story is so moving. And where do you see a love story anymore in America? They don't exist anymore. Romance doesn't exist anymore. Sending flowers don't, that doesn't exist anymore. Can I, can I tell you something that Janine's neuropsychiatrist told me when we finally got her into the right facility? Yes. I did a lot of research to get her into Northridge Hospital, and that was the first time I could take a deep breath and say, thank God there's going to be a happy ending here. Her neuropsychiatrist, uh, I had to spend two or three hours with her on day one giving her Janine's life story because her brain was a jumbled mess. It was all there, but it was like a jigsaw puzzle that had to be put back together again. So when we finished this enormous session, when I told her about her family and my family and what our interests were and all of this stuff, and she took copious notes, she was a wonderful doctor. She said, I have to tell you something. She said, you know, over 50% of significant others or spouses can't handle an emergency medical system like this, be it a stroke or a brain aneurysm, and there's a big difference, or cancer, or, or dementia, some debilitating disease that's going to alter their lives together, over 50% of the significant others walk away. Just, I'm done. Family handle it. She said to me, you, on the other hand, not only didn't walk away, you married her. 
it's, you know, you just go into that mode, John, when you care deeply enough for somebody and you don't want to let her slip away. And believe me, I waited 51 years to find the right person, somebody who understood my ranting and raving, somebody who loved the same things as me. How many women do you know that love the three stooges, for God's sake? <laughs> this is the guy, you know, I was, I, you know, I finally, after all these years in a bad divorce, find the person that I am most compatible with and want to spend the rest of my life with. And she's going to be taken away from me. Well, fuck you. That's not going to happen. So but the point I'm trying to make here is that 50 percent of the people can't handle it. And you just go into that mode. If you care about somebody enough, it's really second nature. What I wasn't aware of was the bullshit I had to go through to get her well. And that's what CJ portrays so brilliantly in this film. And I'm indebted to him for getting the word out that you can fight the system. I've but only you have to you have to you really have to fight. That's the two, point. you're one in a million. And I've met number two in a woman uh, a million, a woman who was married to a very successful attorney and uh, fathered five children. One of the babies died young. He was like fifty one or fifty two and he got cancer, but cancer didn't kill him right away. He sort of disintegrated. Wow. He slept next to him in a chair for seven months to nurse and fed him till he died. Yeah, and I don't know if I could have had the strength to do that. Well, and by the way, I want everybody to know out there, I've had several emails since I started doing interviews for the film. You know, would you be my health advocate? I am officially retired from that industry. <laughs> that's it. So anyway, I cannot thank you enough for who you are and how, what you do for me and now what you're doing for America by letting CJ make this wonderful documentary about you. And CJ, what is your plan for your next film? Or do you have a plan? Oh, he's got, he's, <laughs> oh. Okay, come on. What is it? Well, see, that's the thing. When you self-produce these movies, we have three more that are, and not to belittle, belittle Stu, like we're just like this, you know, <laughs> he's, machine. He's got three more films. It's like Stu's out of it. I'm working on the next thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we got three more movies. During COVID, when there's only two people on the crew, you can stand <laughs> 10 feet back and you can zoom in these lenses. Like, we were able to work. There was, you know, we could, we could do these things safely. So we have three more projects coming out uh, before the end of the year. Um, and, uh, yeah, we'll we'll hopefully you'll like those and and we'll be able to come back because this is very cool i love all the old roasts and um it's uh definitely been a treat that you that you complimented the film and said all that john it's very cool well i must tell you i think you will go further in your career than sterling hayden did in his (laughs) and you may end up being the stanley kubrick of documentary filmmakers i cannot thank you enough you thank you john thank you that you're a joy to me and Steve, Stu, I absolutely love you. You are a treasure. Thank you, thank you so much for being here. And oh my gosh, this show is a treasure for me. It's not kind of a thank you, Stu. I can never th- say enough thank yous for what you have done for me and for Sarita. So God bless. Thank you. You, you. You're a great guest when you do my show, too, John. I always look forward to you driving up here all the way from Vegas. The man drives five and a half hours to do my show. Can you believe you're, that? You're the only one for whom I would do that, quite honestly. You wouldn't do it if CJ started a podcast. <laughs> okay. Thank you all. Oh, my goodness. Thank you all for watching. We will see you again in another two weeks. 
with another talking movies. Maybe not as good as this one, but it'll be okay. See you then, and good luck, and God bless.